When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is our Milan Champions League review episode, and I am joined by a guest to help me out with that. Daniel Russo, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back on, Joe. Always love to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. I don't know why I sound so positive, actually, because (laughs) the match we're reviewing did not go the way we wanted it to. As I'm sure everyone is already aware, Napoli lost the match to Milan in the first leg at the San Siro. Ismail Benacer scored the only goal of the match. In our preview pod with Vincenzo, we talked about how a win would be ideal, a draw would be okay, and even a one-goal loss would not be so bad. You know, the next leg is next week, and with a one-goal deficit, that can very easily be overcome, especially playing at the Maradona, which we'll talk about the atmosphere there lately. Hopefully it's going to be better for the return leg. But Napoli did not only lose the match, we also lost a couple of key players in Andre Frank Zambuangisa, who picked up two yellow cards in the span of four minutes, and Kim Min-Jae, who will be suspended after being cautioned for an excessive reaction to a foul call. I generally don't like talking about the officiating, but that's what everyone was talking about after the match. So, And I think with good reason as well. So I think we do have to start there. We'll address the officiating, and then in part two, we'll move on to the match itself because there was also plenty to talk about from the match, which was, I think, from a neutral's perspective, a very entertaining match, a very good match of football to watch. Let's start with Nguisa's dismissal first, and then we can talk about Kim's yellow card. 
Then this all started with Sandro Tonali making a slide tackle on Cavada in the Milan half. The foul wasn't called. Milan immediately break the other way and Gisa fouls Teo Hernandez and he's cautioned for breaking up the attack. Was that a foul on Cavada? Absolutely. 100% without a shadow of a doubt, a foul. You can see it in live time. You could even see it in the replay. I watched the slow motion replay that's been going on all over the place on Twitter today. I think the out of context Napoli page posted it. And I saw so many Milanese saying, oh, it's a clearly a good challenge. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see all the, re- the rest of the fans saying, oh, my God, it's an awful challenge. Like how, you know, how can the ref let it go? So it was like kind of half and half. But to me, in my eyes, I really try to be objective when it comes to these things, like especially when it comes to officiating, because I hate hearing fans of my own team when we play bad and they try to use the ref as a scapegoat. You know, it just to me, it's never been a a thing that I like to talk about. But yesterday, you just cannot get past Kovac. I think his last name was Kovacs, the Romanian referee. You can't talk about the game without talking about him. And the ref should never be a point of discussion in a game. When he's not the point of discussion, that's when you know it was a well-officiated game. And yesterday was just horrendous. I thought the first half, he actually did very well. He set the precedent where he was letting a lot of fouls go. I think Milan had fouled us plenty in that first half where he was not calling it. He was just letting play go on. Same with Napoli, vice versa. It was the same thing. We were fouling them a lot as well, and he just wasn't calling them, so it was fine. You know, the players means a lot you know to players to just let it go so it set that precedent and then all of a sudden the second half he just like crumbled under the pressure I think and I think he definitely called more fouls against us and gave more yellow cards to us because he knew that if he did it the other way around the whole stadium would be on him I think that definitely played a factor now I went on a tangent about him but Going back to your earlier question, was that a foul on Cavada? It just is. Any angle you look at, he hits Cavada's knee first. Tonali lifts his leg up very high, hits Cavada's knee, which is, I guess, Tonali's only saving grace in the challenge because it does look like he didn't really hit him. But if you look at the replay, he did. Loses the ball, obviously. Kavada falls down, loses the ball. They go on a break, and that's why Angisa has to take down Theo and get a yellow for it. So that's one yellow right there. My initial reaction was that Tonali got a touch on the ball and Kavada went to the ground a little bit late. But after watching it a couple of times, and, and I had to watch it over and over again because I, I, I was yeah. really struggling, but it did look like actually he did not touch the ball. It just missed his toe, and then... His trailing leg was about to touch the ball, but it seemed like Cavada kind of nipped in and pushed the ball ahead. And so as a result of that, Tonali just slides through Cavada. So that seems like a pretty clear foul. And to your point, it did look like Tonali's thigh made contact with Cavada's knee because you almost see his muscle ripple. <laughs> when yeah, that that's, what, that's, that's, that's the, the, sign, the evidence right, right there. That's the yeah. evidence right there. The, the, the muscle rippled. You could clearly see it. And unfortunately, you can't take back a yellow card with VAR. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was Tonali's only saving grace on that play and Milan's saving grace because that led to a second yellow to Anguissa. Yeah, and the crazy thing is 
you even make the argument that had a foul been called on Tonali there, that he would have been cautioned. Oh, yeah. And he was one of Milan's two players who were also on a suspension. So if Tonali's cautioned there, he misses the second leg in Milan. Instead, Anguissa picks up the first of his two yellow cards moments later, and now he's going to miss the second leg. Now, just quickly on the first yellow card, I do think that was a yellow card offense. I know some people were even arguing that that wasn't. No, it was. It was, right? Yeah, I think. I mean, just the fact that you're breaking up an attack like that, you're stopping a chance. I I think even if it was just a slight contact, I think that is a yellow card. The issue was the non-call on Kavada. And even rightfully so, it was challenged by Anguissa. He had to make that challenge on Theo. It's a yellow card worth getting, in my opinion. You know, now... It shouldn't have ended up in that situation, obviously, because that was a foul on Cavada. But I can't fault Anguissa for fouling Theo there. No, absolutely. That's that's the smart play to make, especially at that point. That would have been his first yellow card. So it's something that's just a professional play to make. It's a tactical foul. As we said, that yellow card wouldn't have happened if the foul on Cavada had been called. But I think the second yellow card, which was only four minutes later was probably the more controversial one. Then it looked to me like Anguissa got nothing but the ball on that second tackle. He doesn't touch Theo at all. Does not at all. Theo is a very smart player. Other than being a great player, because that's without question, he's one of the he's probably the best left back in the world. He's a mastermind at instigating. And you need a player like that. Sometimes you need a player to make a dive like that too. Now, just because of that play, Napoli's without one of their starting players for the next game in a huge Champions League quarterfinal second leg. You know, so I don't fault Theo for diving there. I don't fault him for making a meal out of it. But yes, he was making a meal out of it. That's not his fault for doing it. He could do whatever he wants, but the ref just has to see whether there was contact or not. There just isn't. I'm sorry. You know, I see a bunch of Milanisti on, on Twitter saying, oh, he tried to kick Theo in half. Like, what are you looking at? <laughs> there just was no contact. And even if there is, it's very, very minimal. And he gets ball. It's like that guy, the ref went in at halftime and said, I'm going to make huge, lack of better words, a shit show. <laughs> I, I just, I'm going to try my best to make this a shit show. That's what he tried to do, it seems to me. I can understand why Kovacs gave the yellow on the field because in real time, it happened so fast. It was a bit of a bang-bang play. And Gisa's going in with his foot high. Fine. My issue, though, is that the VAR should have reversed that because if I'm not mistaken, VAR can reverse a second yellow card. They can't reverse a first one. And the replay clearly showed that Angisa got only the ball. He even... You even see him pulling his foot back to ensure that he didn't commit the foul. Right. That's how clean it was. Now, I also heard, and again, don't quote me on this. I haven't validated it, but I also heard that the VAR stopped working at some point midway yeah, I think through Calabria. the match. I think Calabria said yeah. something about it in the post-match. Yeah. Exactly. So that that also doesn't help, and maybe that's the reason why they weren't able to review it because this was in the 74th minute. On tail, he's one of these players that, you probably love to have him on your team and everybody else hates him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he is. he isn't, he's an, a master instigator. So, of course, you know, that's going to rub the opposition fans the wrong way. And in this case, I mean, I almost don't even blame him because it looked to me like 
and Gisa gets the ball, the ball hits him in the stomach or the chest mm-hmm. area. So he just feels the contact. Yeah, he he was very theatrical in how he threw himself to the ground and he yelled and stuff. And I mean, you know, that's that's what got the call. Look, you play at a certain level, you see a guy's leg go up that high, you're gonna take advantage of it. That's the way it is. Look no further than Maluda on Materazzi in the 2006 final. You know, Materazzi does not touch him at all. But Materazzi puts his leg up a little high, a little too high. Maluda saw it, takes advantage of it. In a split second, boom, it's a penalty, you know? That's the only criticism I have of Nguisa on this play is that he didn't put himself in a good position with how he went into that tackle. Now, again, like, Teo came flying out of nowhere. I don't know if Nguisa realized that he was going to get to that ball. But you're taking a big risk when you go into a tackle with your foot that high, especially when you're already on a yellow card. So I criticize Angisa a little bit. I think he was very harshly done by, though. The other player who will miss in the return leg is Kim Min-Jae. Only four minutes after Angisa's dismissal, Kim won a header over Alexis Salamakers, which, to my eyes did not appear to be a foul at all and I guess Kim also felt that way and so he was very animated in his reaction and consequently he was cautioned for dissent then I think opinions might vary on this yellow card depending on how you frame the incident and what I mean by that is if you look at this reaction in isolation a yellow card is probably understandable we see players cautioned for overreacting to decisions pretty regularly however when you frame this reaction within the context of the officiating during the match as a whole and you were kind of talking about this earlier with this sudden shift from the first half a lot being allowed to the second half where everything was being called then it was a little bit perplexing that kim was cautioned on this play it's not a foul to begin with so anyone that makes a play like that is any normal player any competitor in any sport is going to be like you know, look at the ref and complain. I think if you give a yellow to Kim there, I don't think he did anything overly extravagant in that play so as to warrant a yellow. I think if you give Kim a yellow there, you have to give every single player on the field a yellow because every single player is going to make that same reaction to that type of call. So it just was so perplexing to me. And even further than that, going back to the Anguisa, the second yellow to Anguisa, it's a normal practice in football nowadays where the ref will go up to the captains before the game and say, I don't talk to any of your teammates. I talk to you guys, to the captains. Di Lorenzo was just, I saw the video today. He was just about to go to the ref just to plead his case about the Anguisa yellow, and he's already getting a yellow. And Di Lorenzo's already being cautioned. So if you can't even talk to the ref as a captain, what, what are we doing here? You know, you're going back on your word. And it was just a mess. The Kovacs was a mess. The big issue for me was, and this is often the case when you have a poorly officiated match, was just the lack of consistency, right? Mm-hmm. Because there were a number of incidents from Milan players that were probably deserving of a yellow card if what Kim did was considered a yellow card. Like you had Rafael Leal completely shattering the corner flag, um, which at the very least should be a caution just for delaying the match because they had to stop and clean up the mess and bring in a new corner flag. 
and Spletti commented on that after the match as well. You know, he, he kind of pleaded to the children of, you know, typical dramatic Spletti comment. You know, what is the message we're sending to kids that now they think they can do whatever they want without any recourse? But um, there was that. And then we saw Teo Hernandez celebrate a tackle where he won a yellow card and he yelled in the face of Lozano. And he got away with just a warning from the official, no yellow card there. And I know Serie A officiating is not the same as European club competition officiating, but we just saw Romelu Lukaku get two yellow cards for taunting fans. And then Teo does this. He taunts a player on the opposite team and gets away with just a warning. And then maybe this one is me nitpicking a little bit, but there was also a play in the second half where Milan won a throw in. Leal goes across the pitch to take the throw in and he took his time to get there. Then he finally gets there and decides, okay, I don't want to take it anymore. And he throws the ball away. And again, just gets away with a warning from the official, no yellow card. So you see all of that happen. And then you see this reaction from Kim. And that's where I say within the context of the match, with the way the official was calling the the match, it seemed like really harsh to me that Kim would get a caution for that. And again, because of that, he's going to miss the second match. You talked about Di Lorenzo getting cautioned, not even getting a chance to plead his case as the club captain. Amazon Prime had Clarence Sadorf as part of their pundit crew, I guess. It was a pretty star-studded cast yeah. of characters they had. I, I think mean, they had La Messi too, no? Yeah, they, I mean, it was a bit more Milan-friendly, I would say. They had Sadorf, Ambrosini, I think Nesta were the three Milanisti, yeah. and then they had... I think Fabio Cannavaro, who to me is more a Juventino than a, a Napolitano, yeah. but he's born in Napoli, played there a little bit. And then Lavezzi as well. But even Lavezzi, he could hardly get a word in. It was like he had to ask for permission to get a word in. But anyway, even Seydorf, who's representing the Milan side, commented on the officiating after the match. He said, personally, I didn't like the officiating at all. You can't start one way and then totally change your attitude in the second half and punish everything. The caution to Di Lorenzo was unfair. He did nothing. He protested slightly, but he's also the captain. I feel sorry for Napoli, who won't be able to play with their preferred men. The official shuffled his cards, and I'm sorry for that. You want to win against strong teams. So that's coming from someone who you know won this competition with Milan. He's four gonna times. Be four times. He's going to be heavily biased in favor of that side. And even he's saying that this was not a well managed match by the official a couple final points i just want to mention on the officiating before we move on to part two you know i saw a lot of people saying that why was he even selected to do this match you know he typically officiates in the romanian league which can't be the same level as you know a top five league i kind of dismissed that one a little bit that doesn't bother me too much i mean it was his first quarterfinal match, but it was his fifth Champions League match. All this season, he did three matches in the group stage. And the one he did in the round of 16 was Liverpool-Real Madrid. And as far as I know, there was no controversy there. So if he could do that match, right. I don't see why he couldn't do this one. The other thing to note, and just to be completely objective, is that you know, with all the Napoli fans complaining about the calls against Napoli, then, of course, you have all the Milan fans trying to find all the bad calls that were made against them. And they raised two. I don't know, Dan, what you think about these two, or if you saw them, some of the complaining about these two on social media from Milanisti, but they felt like they were deserving of two penalty kicks. Yeah, I think one was the one on Krunic, which I didn't see. 
I think it might have been on the play where Kiara hit the crossbar. I don't know. Yeah, that one would be the one that they have a better argument for, I would say, because yeah. it looks like it almost looked like Rachmani got beat by Krunic. And had Kyer not won the header, then Krunic would have, and he just kind mm. of grappled him to the ground. <laughs> um, oh, well, I, I honestly don't remember that play. All I remember during that play was me cowering in my seat. Yeah, because, because everybody was, like, oh was watching so the scared. Yeah. Yeah. I had to yeah, go back so... and watch it again a couple times as well. My only thing about this, even though I know in practice this is not what's typically done because these leagues all want goals, but to me, I almost view that as it's as if the official played the advantage. He said, okay, I'm going to let you take the header. Sucks that you hit the bar, but that was the chance, right? To me, it's not fair that you get the chance, but also then we call it back and give you a penalty kick. So that's kind of my logic, but I can understand the complaints from Milanisti there. The other one was late in the match where um, Salamakers kind of stepped in front of Lobotka. They got tangled up and... To me, that's not a penalty. Never. Never in a million years. It, it just isn't. If you play this sport, if you watch the sport religiously yeah. like we do, you know that that's just not a penalty. I'm sorry. I don't see where they get where they see a penalty. I really yeah. don't. In their defense, what I would say is that part of the, the frustration for Milanisti is they had a penalty called against them for that exact same play against Inter earlier this season where I think it was... Mkhitaryan maybe that or might have been Hakan even that stepped in front of Leao very similar to how Salamaker stepped in front of Lobotka they tangled up went down and Inter got a penalty there so I guess that's where they're coming from but it did really feel to me like this was maybe people who don't play the game much kind of like scouring the clips and finding the perfect angle to try to to make an argument you know a lot of um, whataboutism to me, it looks like Salamakers actually kicks Lobotka from behind, like yeah. on purpose, almost. It was almost like the Cuadrado penalty against Inter a few years ago, the one that took us out of the Champions League. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if you um, yeah, Like where Cuadrado actually kicks Perisic and he goes down and they give him a penalty, you know? Yeah, we, I mean, we see it all the time where a player will intentionally kind of leave his leg in hoping that it gets kicked or there's contact and that they can win a penalty. And I, I do feel like that was sort of what was happening. <laughs> Amir Rachmani definitely thought that's what was happening because then he got <laughs> really fired up and the both of them got oh, yeah, cautioned yeah. on that play. Okay, that will do for part one. In part two, we'll talk about the match itself. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to part two of the Fortsanopoly podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Fortsanopoly pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortsanoplypress.com. Okay, so let's talk about the match itself. Then besides the officiating, the big story around this match, at least from the Napoli perspective, 
was that we basically had no strikers available. Osimhen didn't travel with the team, and Simeon is out for a couple of weeks. I was convinced that Raspadori would start in the number nine because he completed the full group training session on Tuesday. However, he started on the bench, which suggests that he probably wasn't fully fit. Instead, Luciano Spalletti started the ever-versatile Elif Elmas as a false nine. Dan, how did you feel about Elmas's play as a striker? I got to say, I can't really remember much about him on the ball. He was awesome. I think that's why he got the nod on the day. His work rate off the ball is exceptional, always exceptional. And if he was really daring, I think Spalletti would have put Karatskelia up top as a false nine. But then you lack a lot of defensive work, a lot of the defensive work that he needed for an away leg in a Champions League. So I think the choice was right. But man, you know, you look back at the game, the way we played and everything, and you just say, if Ozyman was there. God, if Ozyman was there. Like, every time the ball got up there, up around Elmas, I'm just like, man, if Ozyman was there, what would happen? You know? It really sucks. I, I really hope we see him next week. Yeah, all indications are that we will. I mean, Spalletti said 100% he will be there now. Who knows? That may be just gamesmanship, but I have a feeling Ozyman will be there for the second leg. I wanted to see Lozano play at striker because we know he's played in that position before. He's played there at Napoli and with the Mexican national team, and I figured he would provide some pace in the attack. But after seeing how he played, I agree. I can understand why Spalletti played Almas there from a defensive standpoint because collectively we pressed really high and very aggressively. And Elmas is such a willing runner. If there's one thing you cannot fault this guy for, I mean, we've criticized him for various different things over the seasons, but one thing you can never fault him for is his work rate. And we saw that press and it was really effective. I mean, the final possession stats were a little bit skewed because of that final 15 minutes where we played down a man, but it felt like for a long stretch of the match, certainly in the first half, Milan just could not keep hold of the ball, right? And, I mean, the start of the second half was a little bit different because they had the lead, and it seemed like Milan came out in the second half kind of content to just sit back and wait for opportunities to try to catch us on the counterattack. But, yeah, I thought from a a defensive standpoint, he was great. But to your point, the problem with Elmas is he's just not a striker. (laughs) So while he was great at helping us to win the ball back, He didn't look terribly threatening. He did have one really good chance in the second half where Cavada picked him out with a sort of curling and swinging cross into the area. And he headed the ball from almost the top of the box, a kind of looping header and Magnon backtracked and just tipped the ball either onto the bar or just over the bar. Then Magnon showed in this match that he is one of, if not the best goalkeeper in the world right now. Without a doubt, or senza dubbio. If he's not the best, he's second to Courtois. That's all it is. I mean, you just have to say it objectively. The, the guy is, is just exceptional. Milan have missed him terribly this year. And for me, he's Milan's best player. You could talk about Leao, you could talk about Theo, you could talk about, I don't know, Tomori, I don't know, whatever you want to talk about. He is the key player to Milan. Not only for his talent, but for his leadership as well. You could really see that that back line feels secure with him there. And he's directing the whole show. Absolutely. I mean, Napoli had five shots on target and 
I think four of them at least required really good saves. He stopped Angisa's shot from outside the area. That's a save you would expect him to make, but mm-hmm. it looked like the ball was kind of curling in the opposite direction that Magnon's momentum was taking him, but he still swung his arm out and knocked it away. Zielinski had a pretty powerful strike on target that he stopped as well. I think that's why he's so good, though, Magnon, that he makes saves look easy, almost. Even the Di Lorenzo shot, where it's going pretty much top corner or close to it, it looked like it was easy to him, you know? But that's not easy at all. No, that was the best save out of all of them, right? And to me, that save is as good as a goal. And to your point about him being their best player, preventing what looked like a sure goal is just as valuable as scoring a goal yourself, right? Ironically, Di Lorenzo was probably our best attacking player on the night. I mean, that's again. probably, again, just tells you about the state of our attack in this match, right? Right. At Lecce, he was, again. So that's why I say again. But I hated to see Raspadori not start this game because, for me, he's a very talented player. But you could tell he's been rushed back because of the state of our attack. And even when he came in, did not look sharp at all. He hasn't looked sharp. He looks injured when he's playing. He looks like he can't go full on, you know. I think he was only given the Lecce minutes because they were trying to see if he was fit enough for this game. And I, it was clear he wasn't. So, look, Di Lorenzo being our – I love him. I love the guy to death. But you could not be our best attacker, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, it's now three. I mean, we played really well in the match, but uh, offensively is three matches in a row where we've really struggled to find the back of the goal, right? How many did we score against Lecce? Two? Two or and really technically one. I mean, the, yeah, because the own goal. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, one goal in three matches is uh, really, especially for this Napoli side that has been so prolific this season is not our best time of the season. And that, that Simeone injury could not have come at a worse time either, obviously, with Osimhen out. Incredibly, we created two of our best chances after we went down to 10 men. There was that one on Di Lorenzo, and then there was another one where Politano, who actually thought played quite well off the bench, played a really nice cross to Oliveira in the area, another defender getting a chance, and his header finished on the, the roof of the goal. Now, after watching this match... I walked away feeling like we had dominated the match and we were really unfortunate to lose. But when I listen to other podcasts and other commentary on the match, it seems like the neutrals felt like it was pretty evenly contested. Am I wrong to feel like we deserved a better result here? I don't think you're wrong at all, Joe. I I think I don't know who you're citing these podcasts. I mean, I watch pretty religiously Bobo TV. I don't know if you you uh, watch them at all. You know, uh, I don't know if I would quote any of it. But no, I wouldn't. But, like, but, you know, you're watching Bobo Vieri and Cassano. You yeah, know, guys they're, they're watching the game, players, you know. The very former least, players. Yeah. 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 Even Ventola was a pretty good player, you know. So it's like. Do they have Adani on there now, too? He seems like he's a pretty regular Adani's guy. The, Adani's pretty much the presenter at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Even Adani, he was not too bad in his day. So, you know, you got former players that are pretty important players. And um, Cassano is very much a Napoli fan. You could tell. He's, he's rooting for us hard this year, you know. And he's Interista anyway, so he's always going to be against Milan. But 
said something where it was like Napoli played the match, but Milan, I, you know, he saw them as a little bit more ready for the occasion. And I think that is the best way to, you know, analyze this match where Milan had players like, you know, like Deteo or, or even Brahim, you know, where he just pulls that play out of a hat against Lobotka and Rui, even though I think Rui makes a horrendous mistake there by stepping that far up against the Milan team that's so devastating on the counter. You can never do that. But, you know, something as simple as Theo just, like, riling up Lozano on a random throw-in, just for winning a throw-in, that's something that could really, you know, make or break a game in a tie so contested as much as this one was. And I think that's where our players need to grow a bit more. Even though this season they've been better at it, I think. You know, uh, the gamesmanship. You'd need a little bit of gamesmanship, and especially in these types of games. In our preview, we talked about how Milan's been pushing this idea of the Milan DNA, right? Yeah. And, I mean, even though I don't like that, I think we did kind of see a bit of that. Or at least the lack of European DNA at Napoli, where... We lost our heads, right? Yes, the officiating was poor, but we still let it get to us. Um, That said, there's no denying, to me at least, that we were the more positive side. We were the ones pushing forward, and they were pretty much and just hoping to get a counterattack, knowing how lethal they can be on the break. And especially when the match was at the San Siro, for us to be the more positive side, I think, was a pretty good indication that we played really well, at least. And in my opinion, we were better. I think maybe why the neutrals felt like it was an even match was because while we created more chances, we didn't have that many great chances. Like we had that Kata chance in the opening minute. We had the Di Lorenzo chance late in the match. But many of our 15 shot attempts were either from distance or there are these sort of long range looping headers that you're not going to convert those very often. Whereas Milan had very few chances but they were high-quality chances, so the two kind of evened out. I mean, you had the layout miss on the, the first counterattack midway through the first half. You had the Kyer crossbar and then the goal. And as a result, the XGs were pretty close. It was like 1.3 to 1.1 for Napoli. So let's talk about that goal a little bit. I mean, you alluded to it there with Mario Rui, but once again, we got beat on the break, and once again, it was Brahim and Leao that were involved in the goal. Yeah, I mean... I see Rui as the main culprit to the goal. I know a lot of fans go straight to Medet and try to almost, you know, the torches and pitchforks come out for him a lot. And while I do agree that he could have done much better on the goal, I do think Rui is the main culprit there. And I'll tell you why. Because you could not press Brahim Diaz, a guy that you know is talented enough to turn you like that, that aggressively at midfield when you're a left back. You just can't do it, especially on the counterattack when you got guys like Leao and Krunic and Giroud waiting on the other side, you know? And that's really where the goal comes from. Brahim beats Rui and Lobotka. I'm not going to leave Lobotka out of this either because he was there as well. One of you guys has to take him down after that, at that point. It just has to happen. And they were not quick enough to get to Brahim. He makes a great play, a great turn, world-class turn. Slots the ball to, I think, either Krunic or... It was Krunic, right? I believe. And that was Rui's man. You know? Lo and behold. 
you just cannot make that mistake in a, in a game of that caliber. And I think Meret was anticipating Ben Nasser going far post, so that's why he was, like, cheating there. But even so, you can't. You have to be ready for a near post as well as a goalkeeper of a high quality, and he just fluffed it at the end. Yeah, for the second consecutive match, Brahim Diaz just absolutely destroyed Mario Rui and Lobotka in the build-up to the goal. And the Serie A match, he dribbled around both of them near the touchline before playing the through ball to Leao. And then in this match, he just made that ridiculous turn in the middle of the park. And I think it might have been because Napoli were enjoying such a good spell that maybe they pushed forward a little bit too much and they left themselves exposed in the midfield there with all that space. And again, Milan are so good on the break and they showed it there. In my preview, I wanted Matthias Oliveira to start because I just didn't see what value Mario Rui would bring knowing that we wouldn't have Osimen and we wouldn't have Simeone starting at striker because we all know Mario Rui's biggest strength is his cross. But with those guys playing center forward, you're not going to cross that many balls into the area. Like even if Raspadori was fit to play, you're not using him as a traditional number nine. You're using him more as a false nine. Do you think Spalletti got it wrong playing Mario Rui I mean, it's easy to say maybe in retrospect, but perhaps he should have gone with Oliveira there. In Italy, they call it like a ballottaggio. He could be go 50-50 almost, you know? He's one of those guys, Rui is one of those guys where they could go 50-50. Rui and Oliveira, where just depending on how the wind blows that day, <laughs> you could just say, yeah, Rui's going to play. Or, yeah, Oliveira. It's the same with like Politano Lozano. So... Honestly, I don't like to give too much fault for it because Paletti has shown time and time again that he can pick the right player to start with those two specific positions, you know, left back and right wing. Because those really are our Balotaggio spots. And in retrospect, my opinion, I would have played Oliveira, you know. I think Oliveira was a little bit more adept to the type of game that Milan plays. I think he's a little bit more... Um, I think maybe adept is a little bit a uh, harsh word, but his qualities are a little bit more suited against Milan than it would for, let's say, Rui. You know, I think Spalletti thought about Rui's cross to Simeone and got a little too excited before the game. Yeah, or maybe he figured out. Well, against Lecce, we crossed to the other team and we scored, so <laughs> maybe that would have, maybe, maybe we'll do that again against Milan. You mentioned Madat. I don't know if Benacer was aiming for the near post or if he just kind of mishit the shot, but I think Manette was definitely anticipating a shot to the far post, which is where you would expect the forward to shoot in that situation. But I think a lot of people were correct at the same time to point out just how important goalkeepers are. And we had Magnon make some fantastic saves at one end of the park, and then Manette let in a bit of a weak one at the other end. And you think, I wonder if Magnon was in that situation, if he would have made the save on Benacer there. Thankfully, we didn't concede a second goal in the final 15 minutes of the match. Do you consider that to be a small victory in and of itself, that we're heading back to the Maradona, even though we lost, we went down a man, we're heading back only down a goal? I think definitely, absolutely. Um in Naples, especially because of, you know, for Napoli, they, they usually say, they say the, the donkey's injured, but he's not dead. <laughs> if I were to title this, 
I would put it like that, you know, because that's really what it is. He's injured, but we are not dead yet. And I think we have all the play for in that second leg, especially with just a one-goal deficit. That's so easily, easily turned that around. And this competition especially, we see it time and time again every year. You know, no lead is safe, really, in this competition. And with a team with the firepower that we have, especially if Ozzy Men is back, I don't see why we can't rebound the result. I've talked a lot about the psychology of this match. I, I think while Milan will definitely be happy to have a lead, they might also regret not having taken advantage of having that extra man. And then on the flip side, I think while Napoli will be disappointed to be behind, I think there are a lot of positive takeaways heading into the second leg. And one of them is that we didn't concede that second goal when we went down a man. Even though we lost, I think this was the first match against Milan this season where we were actually the better side, right? Because even in the match we beat them in Serie A, the first uh, in the Girona di Andata, they were still the better side. And we were the better side in this one while we were shorthanded both in terms of the injuries and in terms of just the number of players on the pitch at the end of the match. Then the last thing I want to talk about is unfortunately a bit of a negative topic, which is the fans. Both sets of fans did some pretty despicable things during the match. We saw a set of Milan fans unfurl a banner that said Via Rafael Estazi 4046, which is an address. And if you put that into Google, you'll find that it's the address of a soap and water shop, which is a reference to a fairly common insult that's hurled at Neapolitan people, namely that they're like dirty people, they need to wash themselves. On the other hand, there have been reports that Napoli fans in the visitors section were throwing bottles of coke and spitting and apparently tossing urine over the rail into the Milan section below them. I don't know if that story has been entirely validated. I saw a video where you could definitely see bottles coming flying down from the upper section, from the visitors section. I don't know about the other stuff. Dan, what do you make of all of this behavior from both sets of fans? It seems to be like a never-ending battle with Italian fans especially. I know that De Laurentiis was just quoted this week. He said he wants to kind of Margaret Thatcher, you know, like a complete stop on the way that, you know, the fan bases are being treated or the leniency that they're given by the clubs and the, and the FIGC. I think both extremes are wrong in that sense. I think definitely there needs to be some reform with the fans because the way that Italy is going is just unacceptable. Should never see, you know, banners like that being allowed to stay in a stadium with the caliber of the San Siro and, and on world television. You know what I mean? At the same time, I don't know how true it is, but how do you allow people to bottles and hurl them over, you know, Curl them over. Like, I, I don't even know how a human being could even think to do something like that. It's like it doesn't doesn't make any sense to me, you know, at a football game. It's just insane, you know. So I think there needs to be a happy middle ground here where both sides get what they want. Where in the sense that, for example, you know, back against Milan, we had basically no fan base that game. The ultras weren't allowed to come in with banners, with flags, and that obviously really upset them, and they they stayed quiet the whole game. And you saw what happened and what effect that, that had on the team. So obviously, you know, football is meant to be lived 
by the fan, you know. Really, the fans are the driving force. If you don't have proper fan base, you know, a proper uh, or proper means, you know, to be able to sing during a game and bring in, you know, banners and flags, then, yeah, it, it hurts the teams. But at the same time, you need to have, you know, respectable banners. So I wish there was just like a happy middle ground here, but we're not meeting it, and Italy needs to do better. The Laurentiis has been going on about this whole Margaret Thatcher approach for a little while now. I think it's it's kind of widely known that he would, if it were up to him, he'd have no ultras whatsoever, and perhaps he's not appreciating the environment that they create because they're the ones leading the chance. These incidents with throwing things and clashes, it's probably always been that way, but I am really getting tired of it, especially you know with the Italian game trying to grow and trying to keep up with the Premier League. These things definitely don't help. And to your point, especially when it's a Champions League match where everybody's watching, it's not just a, a Serie A match where it's limited to just you know Serie A fans. Interestingly, the Milano-based website that reported what the Napoli fans did specifically noted that it was not the ultras who were misbehaving. So I guess it was just the other traveling Napoli supporters yeah. who were acting up. You mentioned, you know, this civil war, let's call it, between the ultras and De Laurentiis. There are reports that perhaps that gap is going to be bridged. There was a video going around on social media from a TikToker named Ernesto Colella calling De Laurentiis. I don't know how this guy got his number. They seem to kind of know each other, though. <laughs> and, I saw and, that. I saw that. Yeah, I, I, and I sound from all accounts, it seems like it was a real thing, too. It's not like someone just doing an impression or AI or something. I don't know. It was funny, actually, because the first thing De Laurentiis says is, like, whose number is this? <laughs> um, and then when he says his name, he's like, oh, okay, and they start talking. And... There was a couple of quotes from there. De Laurentiis said he's against UEFA and he's against FIFA, which a lot of people jumped on. He he said how we only conceded one goal. It's not like we conceded three. We're very much alive in the match. So that that's good. And then when Colella asked De Laurentiis to make peace with the Ultras, surprisingly, he said, that's what we need to do, which, you know, I never thought he would back down at all on this one. But I guess even he recognized that something needs to be done. And then he added that he will be meeting with the Ministry of the Interior to find a solution. So hopefully that means that we'll be able to get our ultras into the match in the first place because they don't want to get fidelity cards. So they need to find another way to get them in. And then hopefully they allow them to have flags and drums and speaker phones or whatever megaphone so that they can lead those chants. Who knows? Maybe we'll even have them back for the Hellas Verona match which is actually easier to get them into and, and have all of that and, and maybe get that environment back. And, you know, while I don't condone a lot of the behavior of, let's call it the select few, I do think it's important that everyone from the fans to the players to the coaching staff is all kind of aligned and on the same page, the ownership as well. We even heard Spalletti say it in his post-match Conferenza Stampa that, you know, his players are sensitive to these things, and he went so far as to say, and I wonder if this kind of influenced De Laurentiis' kind of change in position on this, where he said, if the fans hold his players hostage again, like they did in the Milan match, he's going to leave the bench and he's going to go home, which is a pretty bold statement for Spalletti to make there. You know, I was just listening back to that Conferenza Stampa today, and that word really stuck with me, the ostaggio. 
he actually said that the fans held his team hostage. And I really think that Paletti is, without a doubt, one of the best, you know, Serie A managers ever, in my opinion. But not just for his tactics, though. I think because of his personality and because of how he approaches press conferences and his ability to communicate with a fan base or with anybody, really. I really think this is all set from him. I really think it's all coming from that. He has the power to do it, and especially somebody that's bringing a Scudetto to Napoli after three decades, he's even held to a higher regard. And really, his word is almost going to be taken like word of God at this point. So I really think he has that much of an influence that this could happen because of him. Absolutely. I think that's the key. I think if he were to make a statement like that while he's sitting in third or fourth, he might get himself fired. But when you're mm-hmm. you know, 16 points clear at the top of the table or whatever it is, you do carry a bit more weight and does have a bit more of that freedom. And actually, De Laurentiis is probably thinking, I need to keep this guy happy to make sure that I can keep him on for another season, right? And, yeah, and maybe try absolutely. to repeat what we're doing this year. Okay, Dan, that's just about all we have time for today. But any final thoughts before we wrap it up? The only thought I have is Forza, 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 Napoli. Let's do this on Wednesday. Or, yeah, Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. Sorry, I get yeah. mixed up with the days. No, nah, it's okay. Well, sempre, sempre, sempre. Uh, you can find Dan on Twitter at Daniel underscore Russo 22. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps to spread the word. Unfortunately, I won't have time to do a preview pod for the Hellas Verona match. This episode is going to be published on Friday and we play Hellas Verona on Saturday. But we will have our usual preview up on the website, so be sure to check that out. I will be back next week to review the Hellas Verona match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre. Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.